My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And um, if you've got your Bibles, go to Joshua chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. And as you open up Joshua 11, um, I want to tell you about what we did yesterday uh, here at this campus, if you uh, weren't here. But yesterday, we gathered and we paid respects to one of our, the elders of our church, uh, Jim Tarter. And uh, Jim Tarter went to be with the Lord a little over a week ago, um, a week from, from this last Friday. And at, at 81 years old, I uh, was going to turn 82 years old this year, uh, married 57 years to Anne. And Ann uh, was here with him every Sunday morning. And Jim's been an elder of this church for over 20 years. Second church he's actually served as an elder. First one was Northwest Bible Church in Dallas for many years. And I, I just want to say this morning, it was, it was a great time to honor him. And as I have reflected over the last week, Jim's been an active elder. He's one of our trustee elders. He has been the secretary of our elder board, which means he's the man who um, produces every month the, the minutes of our meetings. And so uh, there hasn't been a day uh, in 17 years that I've been here at Bethel that Jim hasn't been actively involved. And I say that to say that this, Jim's death leaves a big hole, humanly speaking, and I also want to say Jim's life casts a big vision. And I want you to hear that. It casts a vision for you. And so I'm going to tell you what I'm praying. I'm praying that God would absolutely capture your heart and mind and your affections and that he'd show you clearly the things in your life that are a distraction to you, and that are keeping you from the better things that God has for you. That's the kind of vision that Jim's life casts for us. I'm going to tell you, there wasn't a single person in this room yesterday, and it was full. We had all the chairs out, and it was full, that did not say, there was not a single person that did not say to themselves, you know, that's the way I want to finish this race. That's the way that I want to live my life, all the way to the end, run all the way to the finish line. I, listen, and I'm, I'm not do this very long, but I want to honor Jim and his service here. The, Jim's grandchildren stood up and through tears and with great affection talked about their grandfather's faith. Tell me that you wouldn't want that at the end of your life. Not a person in the room yesterday did not look longingly upon the legacy that Jim Tarter leaves. The wanting, that, that's not the problem. It's the humility and the contentment and the faith and obedience of a life lived pursuing God, especially on the days that nobody notices. 
It's like Eugene Peterson talks about a long obedience in the same direction. That is a, that's a perfect title for Jim's life. So, I'm praying that the men and the women of this church, the, the most incredible days of your faith and spiritual growth are ahead of you. So, I'm praying God would stir your heart with a vision and that he'd use the example of Jim's life, one of our elders, and that's how it's supposed to work to spur you on this morning. In fact, let us spur one another on. That, that's what we're supposed to do. I was talking to a guy this week, young guy, and uh, we were at a, at a thing, and he found out I was a pastor, knew that I was a pastor, and came over and introduced himself, and we chit-chatted for just a second, and the first... You know, and I realized all of a sudden this is what he'd come over to ask me. And he said, um, hey, how, how do you know if you're called to ministry? So I'm like, well, are you asking for you or for a friend? <laughs> because I'm pretty sure one of the ways you know is if you walk up to strangers in a room and ask them, how do you know you're called to ministry? And it was a guy kind of struggling with, you know, what is it that God has for me? Do I have the courage to step out and to do that? Young professional guy. You know, and from the world standards, a lot to lose. And um, just trying to decide, is that something that he'll do? And I, I listen, I have every expectation that there are men and women at Bethel Bible Church that God has a call on your life for something that's going to feel absolutely scary and radical. And uh, some people in your life might think you're crazy. But that's exactly the way God has for us. And so I'm praying for that, for courage. That, that Man, may Jim Tarter's tribe increase throughout this congregation. All right, I'm done. Let me pray, and then we're going to get into Joshua chapter 11. Father, I thank you for the, for the example of Jim Tarter's life. Thank you that you brought him to this congregation, that you... He, he lived so um, open and transparent with us, and was such an encourager to us, and whether we knew him closely or knew him from afar, well, he, was, he was the same man from both perspectives. And so, we do, we grieve the loss of Jim, who is our friend, and um, such, a, such a great guide to us. And Father, at the same time, I pray that the life he lived would cast a vision for us. What it means to serve you all of our days. And that, Father, you call men and women, even beginning this morning, 
to cast aside some of the things that are a distraction. And uh, Father, to turn to you in real earnest for what you have for them. So, I ask this the only way we can ask something like this, and that's in the name of your Son, Jesus, and, and we need the power of your Spirit. Amen. All right, Joshua chapter 11. So, um, I, let me tell you this. Joshua 11 and Joshua 12 are kind of transition chapters in uh, the book of Joshua. We started the series on Joshua uh, last September, and we spent most of the fall getting through the first 10 chapters, and then we took a break for Christmas, and now we're coming back to it, and we're picking up where the book is naturally transitioning. And it's transitioning from the conquest, the conquering of this promised land. If you'll remember, these are the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness. Actually, these are the children of the Israelites that were wandering in the wilderness. The beginning of Joshua under Joshua's leadership, the, you know, the, the successor to Moses. They cross into the promised land and begin under God's instruction to take that which he has promised to them. And chapter 11 and chapter 12 kind of sum up all of this conquering. We're going to get the last bit of it. They're going to take the northern part of this promised land in chapter 11, and then chapter 12 next week we'll see the, the list of all the kings, and you're like, man, how are you going to preach that passage next week if you're looking ahead? And I would just say to you, that is a great question. Um, but we'll just come next week and find out. And, uh, but th then after 11 and 12, after this transition, we get into what does it look like when they begin to settle the land under Joshua's leadership. And there are lots of familiar stories to you in the last part of Joshua. I can't wait to get there together, but I want us to make sure we see what the biblical writer's doing here um, towards the end of the report of the conquest of the land. And so, so look, look with me. I, let's read the first uh, five verses. And, and uh, I'm going to stop there, and I want to I talk about that for a minute, and then we'll pick up and get through the rest of the, of the chapter. It, it starts this way. This is how um, the, the writer is going to convey to us the northern part of the land being conquered. It says, When Jabin, king of Hazor heard this, and the thing he heard was about Israel coming into the land, the conquering that they did in the south, and, and all of the exploits up to this point. When he heard this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king Shimron, and to the king of Ashkfath, and the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinnereth, which is uh, uh, Galilee, and in the lowland, and in Napheth Dor on the west. To the Canaanites in the east and west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under the Hermon land, Hermon in the land of Mitzvah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde and number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all the kings joined forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom. 
to fight against Israel. Let's stop right there. When we read that, it's riveting, isn't it? Mm, not really. You hit that chapter in your devotions, and you're like, man, I whew, wonder what the word of the Lord is for me in this roll call of the opponents against Israel. Well, let me say, you know, when you get to a place like this, you have to ask, okay, why is this here? You know, of all the things that could be in the Bible, why, why is this thing in the Bible? Why, why the long list of details? Why, you know, why, why is, you know, in the first two chapters, the writers, he's heaping on the royalty. You got king and king and king and king. And then, then he tells us all the geography, all their ethnicity. Verse 4, he uses, you know, the, the, the liter, literary device hyperbole, you know, to paint this picture of what it was like. You know, he could have summed it up. He could have just said, Jabin got a bunch of people together to fight Israel. You'd get the idea. Ten words, that's all it would take. Instead, the writer's going to use 73 Hebrew words, 100, over 150 English words to tell us about these people that have come and they've gathered. We can hardly catch our breath when we read it. About a month ago, um, the World Cup finals were on TV. It was a Sunday morning uh, here in the States, and so I was here uh, preaching. But I knew my brother, because he's a pagan, was watching it. It was Argentina versus France. And I had forgotten until later in the afternoon that the, the, the game was on. And so I, I called my brother. Now, listen, I realized I could have found out who won the game a lot of ways. But it was an occasion to call my brother and talk, talk about the game. So, so my question to him was this. Who won the World Cup? Well, the simple answer to the question is Argentina. But that's not how he answered it. To simply say Argentina won the World Cup is really an impossible thing to say because they didn't just win. I mean, they won. It was incredible. Tied 3-3, went to a shootout. Messi, you know, finally the hero, gets his World Cup, all those things. Probably one of the most thrilling sporting events that was ever televised. And to understand that Argentina won, you have to hear the story. And believe me, I heard the story you got to know the details. You, you can't understand. You can't just appreciate the game with only the score or, or only the winner. You have to understand what they were facing. You have to understand what was on the line. And so line by line and detail by detail, danger upon danger, enemy upon enemy, you, you, you're finally drawn in to see that, that if, if you just take the first five verses, you realize Israel, as they are going to take this land that God has promised in the north, they are facing a 
hopeless situation. They are facing an impossible situation. And so he piles up the details so that there's no mistake in your mind that what happens happens because of what God has done. Now look at verse 6 with me. After the roll call has been made, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. And then God adds this instruction, You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So God speaks into the fears, and he promises the victory. But here's what he doesn't do. This is so interesting. God never tells the Israelites how he's going to, you know, bring about this victory. He says, hey, this time tomorrow, the thing's going to happen. That there would be no direct, visible, divine intervention to bring about the victory to Israel. Sometimes God did that for, for them. But Israel, they were going to have to go out. They were going to have to gather the troops, and they were going to have to march towards this horde that had gathered. They were going to have to go to battle. But there would be no doubt, God says, that they'd be the winners. And it makes me think about this question. Can you trust God even when you cannot see how he is working in the details. Can you trust him? You say, God, you know, I, I trust you. I trust you are working in the midst of details that I cannot perceive. See, we need to trust God. And that how he works is sometimes he works through the things that, that we're actually doing. And, and while it doesn't feel like we're doing anything supernatural, because we aren't. Sometimes we're just fumbling around. Sometimes, you know, our best leaves something to be desired, but that's all we got. But we can trust God. That he can work through us. He can work in our weakness. We can have confidence to take the steps forward in the direction of what God's promised, like obedient steps forward into those areas that we know that God's promised or is calling us to, even if we can't see all the details. This last bit of instruction about the hamstring and the horses and burning the chariots, victory, God wants them to know, listen, victory doesn't come through soldiers and horses it's going to come through the power of God. Sometimes it is true that the more you have, the less you are. It's a good audit of our life right now. But what is in my life right now that is keeping me from being dependent upon God? Right? What right now in my life keeps me from being dependent upon God today? Well, 
verse 6 is the only place God speaks directly in this chapter. When you get to verses 7 through 15, you're going to see this is how the battle of the northern campaign goes. Now, when we get to verse 16, it's going to be kind of a summary of the whole first half of the book. But look real quickly at uh, verses 7 through 15. I'm not going to read them all, but I want to, I want to dip in here to a couple of things. So let me summarize it this way. In verses 7 through 9, Joshua, he sends all the troops, and they do this surprise attack by the waters of Merom, which, which is up north. And the connection is Joshua hears from God in verse 6. He believes God, and then he immediately takes action. They immediately do it. It's probably they act so quickly, they catch all these kings and their troops by surprise. And then in verse 10 through 15, you get the specifics about what happens to Hazor. And if you remember from verse 1, it's Jabin, the king of Hazor, that heard about these things, and he's the ringleader. He's the one that's gathered all of these other kings. Pick up with me in verse 10. It says, And Joshua, he turned back at the time and, and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. Verse 12, all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to, this, to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Verse 13, but none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone that Joshua burned. And all the spoils of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder, but every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave anyone who breathed. Just as Moses, or just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. All right, let's stop there for a minute. So verse 10, the king struck down. Verse 11, everybody that carried a sword is struck down. Then they burned Hazor. Verse 12, they devoted it to destruction, just like Moses commanded. Verses 14 and 15, everything is destroyed, just like Moses commanded. Here's a question. What do we do with things that we do not like in Scripture? I mean, you might be asking, listen, is the total devoting them to destruction really necessary? I mean, it sounds harsh, right? So what do we do with that? Let me offer up a couple of things. First, I think we need to study. When we come across this in the Bible, I think we need to study. We need to get into it. We need to see what it is that we can find out. Secondly, we should meditate upon it. See, when the, when the Scripture runs against the grain of my own thinking, that's when I need to stop and I need to think about what it is that Scripture's telling me. 
study, meditate. Thirdly, we need to make an examination. See, when we conclude, you know, when we've understood the Scripture and we conclude, you know, hey, I know what this means, but I don't like what it means because it makes me uncomfortable or it doesn't exactly fit, you know, the category that I have when it comes to God. We need to make an examination. We need to make peace with the passage. Here's what we cannot do. We cannot just disregard the passage. It is a place to stop and to pray specifically. Pray to God and ask God that his spirit would provide you insight to help you understand. God, why do I need to know this about you? You know, I was doing just fine. Until now, I'm confronted with your judgment. And to me, it seems harsh. Is it, is it even fair? But rather than be ignorant of this or run away from this, we say to God, God, I want to know you better because of this. There are a lot of places like that in Scripture. And every generation encounters some of their own unique sets of places like that in Scripture. But let me tell you what you'd discover if you did a little study. This is, this is easy to find. First is that there were heinous sins on the part of the Canaanites. It included incest and adultery and child sacrifice and homosexuality, bestiality. The society was thoroughly debased. You'd find that in Leviticus chapter 18, Deuteronomy chapter 9. Those things are, are, are there. Secondly, what you discover is that God had waited to execute judgment. You go back to Genesis 15 and you realize that God in his patience and his long-suffering had endured this for over 400 years. And by the time Joshua comes along, the sins, they permeated the whole culture thoroughly. The third thing you'd find out is that, listen, by wiping out the Canaanites, God was doing this to protect his people, the Israelites. He did not want his people, the Israelites, to fall into those sins. This is very much a part of the motive. Fourth. God had promised to bless those nations that blessed Israel. Go back to Genesis 12 and you see the promise to Abraham. Abraham, those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. That goes for all of your descendants as well. And the Canaanites had, had already been aggressors. They had already tried to destroy the Israelites on multiple occasions. And God's not going to permit that. Fifth, when God commands to annihilate the Canaanites, the devoted to destruction, the Israelites didn't take it as a mandate to kill every single individual who lived in Canaan. At this time, there were exceptions. There were people who were object of God's special grace. You find, we remember, we read about Rahab. We, we read about the Gibeonites that God spared, even though they were, they were liars. 
So, so here's what I come away with. I, I come away with that there is a spiritual cancer that's present in Canaan that is hard to fully comprehend. One writer, he points to the tension that we feel in the passage. He says, we uh, arrogantly pride ourselves on being kinder than God, but we only prove that we haven't a clue about what holiness is. Just as a side note, it's always safe to say that if your conclusion is that you're kinder than God, you're the one that's wrong. That's safe. Here's what I also come away with. I come away with the cost of obedience. God, I want to do your will. And you see, I come away with how radical it is to obey God. That, that obedience to God, obedience to the will of God is oftentimes in conflict with the comfort and the convenience of my own will. That obedience to God, listen, you can be sure that in your Christian life, God will call you to an obedience that runs right against all your comfort and all your convenience and your common sense. Here's the last thing. I also come away with, and I can't help but think, that if God did not send his son into the world to satisfy the justice required for the sin and the rebellion in my own life, then in this story, I'm not the Israelite. I'm the Canaanite. I deserve total destruction that the Canaanites received. And instead, what the gospel tells me is Jesus steps in. He receives all that destruction on my behalf. That the sin is punished. And the justice is satisfied. But I did not become the object of that. Jesus stepped in and suffered the total destruction on my behalf. And when I walk through a passage like that, it helps me to know God better. Well, let's, let's get 16 through 20. I don't want to be a good steward of the time. So Joshua, it says in verse 16, this, now we're in a new section. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country and the Negev and the land of Goshen and the low land of the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its low land from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Belgad, the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Verse 18, Joshua made a, a long, war a long time with all those kings, about seven years is what you, we can figure out. And I'll show you in a couple of weeks how we get to the seven years of that war. Verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. All right. Stop right there for a minute. This was the Lord's doing. What was the Lord's doing? To harden 
their hearts. We don't like that a bit, do we? We cringe at verses like this because they make God look bad, right? Uncivilized or cruel. And not only that, now that's two hard things in this chapter. What does it mean by hardening their hearts? Well, it happened in Egypt with the Pharaoh back in Exodus. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 9. You know, you come up, who gave God the right to be so sovereign? Listen, I'm not going to get into all the things people say about this passage and the, and the other passages, except to say this. Whatever you ultimately think is going on here, um, whatever you conclude about the issue uh, related to God's sovereignty and man's free will, whatever it is that you conclude, here's, a, here's what I can tell you. There is ultimately no legitimate answer that doesn't leave you squirming just a little bit. There is no legitimate answer that takes the sovereignty of God off the table. So, when that happens, here's some good advice. Worship. You know what we do when we come to verse 20? Worship. Be humbled. Where we get down on our knees and we worship, tremble even a little bit for how great and awesome is our God. There's a connection we continue to hear, right? Just as the Lord commanded Moses, there's this continuity of God's promise and his plan to accomplish all of his will. There's this continuity also of God's faithful leadership and the faithful leadership of God's people from Moses to Joshua, we were just talking about it this morning with Jim Tartar. Unfortunately, in Israel's history, that will not be the norm after Joshua. All right, look at verse 21. I want you to see something cool. Verse 21, it says this, And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim, you can make note of the Anakim, all right? They're from the hill country, from Hebron, from Deborah, from Anab, from the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land except of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod did some remain. Verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments and the land had rest from war. If you were to look there in the cross-references of your Bible, if you've got them, in verse 21 you see a cross-reference to Numbers chapter 13, somewhere along in there. Numbers chapter 13 is the chapter that tells us about when the tens or the 12 spies go from Moses' direction. They go and they spy out the promised land. And remember, when they come back, the 10 
the majority report of the 12 spies, 10 of them say, there is no way in the world we could ever take this land because giants live there. And you know who they're talking about? What was their name? They're the Anakim. The giants, they walk around there. They've descended from the Nephilim in, in Genesis chapter 6. You know, those mysterious Nephilim giants. Here's what's great. At the very end of the reporting, at the very end of all that's happening, the, the incredible hulks of the land of Canaan. It's so interesting. Because this last entry, this overview of the conquest, highlights the defeat of the Anakim. God's saying you you had nothing to fear. There was no reason not to believe me in Numbers 13. Sometimes the most dreadful fears that we have, we just have to lay them down. In light of God's power. Listen, I'm not, this is not about trivializing. I'm, I'm, I'm not having a conversation here about the giants in your life, but, but I don't want to leave the, the text unapplied for us. At the very least, what this means is that God's power is adequate to meet the things that you find yourself most afraid of. God's power is adequate to meet the things you find yourself having the most anxiety about in your life. The form of our fears and our anxieties is different than theirs, but the adequacy, the sufficiency, the power of God is is the same. I'll give you an example, we'll close. Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. If you have not read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, do that in 2023? Like, stop wasting your life? (laughs) And if you think, man, that's a long book, well, get the children's version. You know, it's like the, it's great. Just read it, you know? John Bunyan, good night, read that book. All right. He describes the Christian's approach. They're going to the Palace of Beautiful. They they hope that they're going to get lodging there. And so, the, the character, Christian, he begins to walk down this narrow passage leading to the, to the lodge, and he sees two lions that are in the way. And Bunyan adds it parenthetically. This is a great line. He says, the lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. That's frequently the case, isn't it? We don't see the chains. We find ourselves afraid because we don't see the chains. But we find out, listen, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and has all things under his feet, which means every power that would destroy us is chained. And we have nothing, nothing to fear even if we cannot see the chains. The 
passage this morning, this chapter, I come away, and the question for us is, do we trust God? When things seem too big or too scary or fill us with anxiety, do we trust God? Do we, do we trust God with who He is? Do we trust God to be obedient to walk forward in the things He's called us to? Do we trust Him to, to believe Him for what it is that He's promised? It's very likely there are things in your life and my life that distract us from believing and trusting God, keep us from dependence upon Him. What are those? If you would, would you bow with me? Father, we, we want to be people. We're here this morning because we want to worship you. We're here this morning because we want to grow in our knowledge and understanding of you. We want to grow in our faith. And so, Father, whether we say it out loud all the time or not, what we confess this morning is that means that when we come face to face with who you are in your word, it does not leave us with the choice to be unchanged. Father, it doesn't leave us with the choice to not examine our lives. So, Father, this morning, we, the questions posed, do we trust you? And, and are there other things that we have become dependent on so that we don't have to depend on you? And Father, how are those things keeping us from the, from the better that you have for us? So, Father, every person in this room would answer it differently. But I pray we'd have the courage to ask and answer, what, what is it that I need to set aside so that I find myself in a place to trust you? Father, would you do that in my life? Would you do that in the life of my friends here? And Father, maybe there's somebody here that's never trusted you for anything in their life. Would you grant them the faith to take hold of your son, Jesus, as their Savior. We pray this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.